Hydra, which are tiny animals related to jellyfish, are wonders. They don't appear to age. Cut one in half, even put one in a blender, and you can get them to regrow. That makes them of particular interest to scientists who want to study the neurons of these creatures, which, it turns out, are fairly evenly distributed throughout a hydra's body. Studying the relationship between neural activity and a hydra's movement, though, takes studying living hydra, which are remarkably hard to pin down. They're bendy, they're deformable, and it turns out they're too easy to rip in half, giving you again two hydra. And that's where new microfluidic devices come in. One of the powers of microfluidic devices is that we can make potentially dozens or even hundreds of chambers and have animals behaving simultaneously collect all that data at once. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, an interview with Jacob Robinson, a neuroengineer at Rice University, whose team has created new devices to trap the elusive Hydra. I'm Robert Frederick. Here's our interview. So the, the overall goal of, of you know, the, the work with, with this animal is to understand the relationship between what the animal is doing and what the animal is thinking. And the opportunity is that we can develop this understanding at the level of individual brain cells that are communicating with one another because this animal is so tiny that we can look at all the neurons at once and it's transparent so we can see these neurons with an optical microscope. Uh, the other really exciting thing about this animal is that the nervous system, the brain, is constantly changing and rewiring as new neurons are born, as the animal is damaged and repairs itself. So it's a very plastic brain. It's constantly remodeling itself. So in these tiny organisms where there's this opportunity to look at the whole brain activity while the animal is moving, what people have done is they've developed a variety of technologies to kind of immobilize the animal under a microscope so they can study the brain while the animal is performing behaviors. So in the case of Drosophila, you can squeeze a fly and let it walk around on a little ball while you watch the brain. In the case of C. elegant worms, there's microfluidic devices similar to the devices that we've developed, but there's some key differences between what people have done in Drosophila and in worms that don't necessarily apply to Hydra. Before we get to that, what's the limitation of these other model organisms? Why the desire to study the Hydra in, yeah. in addition or instead of these other model organisms? Right, that's a great question. So I, I think it's very important that we don't think of these model organisms as a replacement for existing model organisms. The organisms that we have now are fantastic and they allow us to learn a lot about fundamental biology in these animals. I think it's important for us to study very different types of animals, animals that are maybe evolutionarily very, very different. And the reason why is that we might be able to understand principles of neural circuit activity that persist across a wide range of different types of animals. And these are the fundamental building blocks that nervous systems might be based on. And the other, I think, really important difference is that hydra have this very plastic nervous system, which is very different from C. elegans or Drosophila. C. elegans and Drosophila have kind of a hardwired nervous system where the connections between all the neurons are relatively static, meaning we know what that wiring diagram looks like. The strength of those connections might change, but the overall connectivity between all of the cells is relatively the same across different animals throughout their lifetime. Now, Hydra is almost a completely different story where the number of neurons changed dramatically by factors of 10. 
the connections between them change. The animal can be cut into half and reform two new animals with half the neuron, but still able to perform behavior. So the hydronervous system has this incredible plasticity that we don't see in other invertebrate model organisms. And that's why I think it's one of the important additions to the suite of animals that we use for neuroscience. In studying the hydra then, these tiny little animals, what challenges were you and your team trying to overcome? So hydra presented a a number of engineering challenges. Now, when we approached the problem, we kind of naively thought that because hydra have these regenerative abilities, that they'd be very robust and hard to kill, and we can do whatever we wanted with them. And it turned out that they're actually quite fragile. Although they can regenerate and have no sense of aging, they're quite sensitive to being mechanically manipulated. So early on, we found that the same technologies that we used for C. elegans were too rough on the Hydra and actually ripped them apart. So we had to kind of redesign everything from the way that we moved the animals into the devices to the ways that we designed the channels to make it compatible with the soft and delicate animal. What about the microfluidics designs for soft cell cultures and things like that? Or did you have to really start from the ground up? So, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. We didn't necessarily have to start from the ground up in the sense that technology to create microfluidics devices existed, but technologies to deal with animals that are very soft and animals that are very deformable, which is another thing that was a challenge for us. For instance, C. elegans have a stereotyped size. All of the animals are about the same size at a particular age. Hydra can vary in size by an order of magnitude. So we had to develop technologies that would allow us to immobilize and visualize these animals, even if they might be very different in size. And as the animal moved, they stretched and elongated. So the deformability and the softness of the animal made it hard. Cell culture, microfluidic devices exist and are extremely useful for manipulating individual cells. But again, they don't deal with the fact that the size of the cells can change by orders of magnitude. So what was the solution or what were the solutions that you and your team designed? So the solutions that that we came up with were immobilization chambers that would allow us to trap animals of different sizes. And one solution would be to squeeze the animal around the waist, so to speak. And that would allow us to work with different animals and it exploited the fact that this animal is very squishy. So we can compress it by quite a bit and keep that animal in place while we performed our experiments. The other solution that we came up with was a way to squeeze the animal through a small hole and then trap it in a tiny arena. And that arena would sit underneath our microscope. So it would be trapped inside that arena and we could gently perfuse chemicals over the animal and see how the animal responded. And the final solution that we came up with is that we allowed the animal to kind of freely move around, but we squeezed it kind of from top and bottom between a piece of glass and a piece of the the elastomer that we use for the microfluidic device, the PDMS material that's commonly used. And what that allows us to do is keep the animal in a fixed kind of orientation with respect to our microscope so that we can see the animal's body posture. Rather than the animal moving wildly in three dimensions, it can basically be trapped to a two-dimensional plane, but still move around, kind of like an ant farm. And with these three devices, we could look at immobilizing the animal tightly, so we could look at the activity of individual cells, immobilizing it in a small arena, so we could put chemicals on it, and also immobilizing it kind of in a two-dimensional plane, so that we could look at more complex behaviors like locomotion. For the device that keeps the animal immobilized, was it 100% or? No, the animal is immobilized. And because it's so soft and squishy, the animal can kind of slide back and forth. 
but it can keep, we keep it in place for a longer period of time than would be possible normally. So we can make measurements for long periods of time, even though the cells slide back and forth. And we can do a better job of tracking the positions of those cells so that we can try and correlate the activity of individual neurons and the behavior patterns that we're measuring. Okay, so as it's essentially trying to escape, it sounds like, <laughs> you have this behavior going on where it's sort of doing this inchworm type of thing back and forth. That's when you get to sort of look at the individual cells and say, okay, this is what, this is what the neurons are doing when it's trying to go through this inchworm behavior. Is that it? Yeah, that's, that's part of it. And I think the other important thing is that when we compress the animal, we also have the opportunity to press electrodes into the side of the animal. And that allows us to make measurements of the muscle activity. So that's, that's related to this idea of, you know, the kinds of behaviors that we can observe when we squeeze the animal tightly. We can see it struggling back and forth, but importantly, we can also make measurements of the muscle activity while we look at the neural circuits. So how exactly then did you probe their circuitry? So to probe the circuitry, one of the things that we wanted to do was look at the activity of the neurons at the same time the animal is either doing something or its muscles are firing. And to measure the activity of the muscles, we made these tiny electrodes that we call nanospheres that stick out of the wall of the microfluidic device, poke into the side, and it allows us to record um, the activity of the muscles. And so what we can do then is we can say, okay, when is this animal wiggling its muscles, contracting, trying to move, and what's happening inside of the brain? And by doing that, we were able to identify the neural circuits that are driving specific types of movement, and we were able to identify neural circuits that are doing something else that are somehow controlling other activities of the animal that don't drive muscle activity. These are what we think of as maybe the internal states of this animal. Were there any behaviors that the hydra didn't perform while they were in these various microfluidic devices? Yeah, interesting question. So one of the things that we did not see that was somewhat surprising is a behavior that's called somersaulting, where the animal will attach to the surface, let go of its foot, flip over, and grab the surface again with its foot. Now, we think that we didn't observe that because we're confining it to this two-dimensional plane. However, I think we were still able to see the animal move. It can still inchworm about, and it's still contracted. And from what we can tell, the rest of the behavioral repertoire was intact. So these little probes, these little spikes that are uh, yeah. sticking into the side of the hydra, is, is this something that you and your team developed? Or yes, was this borrowing from somewhere else. So we had originally developed these spikes to study worms. Uh, we call them nanospheres. They stand for suspended electrode arrays. Don't try too hard to make that into an acronym. But these nanospheres worked to measure the muscle activity of worms in the same way they pressed into the side through a microfluidic device. And that was a paper that we published about a year ago. After we published that paper, we got approached by people who were studying hydra. And that's when we started to make the connection. So we borrowed this idea from worms and adapted it to make measurements from the hydra. Has it translated? Are, are, are the people who approached you about this now using this technology, these microfluidics? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So after we begin developing this, we've been approached by people who are studying hydra and also people who are studying other soft cnidarians. For instance, box jellyfish or hydrocotinia are other opportunities where we can probably adapt many of these same technologies for other kind of soft and deformable animals. Who's funding this research and why? So this research was originally funded by the Department of Defense through the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. They were interested in new platforms for synthetic biology, and the Hydra represented a nice platform where we might be able to understand how 
biological systems control themselves and how we might engineer new biological controllers. Now we've recently been funded by the National Science Foundation, who's looking to support more functional genomic technologies in diverse model organisms. The support from NSF is going to allow us to develop more modern genetic tools like CRISPR and inducible gene expression, along with the technologies necessary to phenotype animal behavior and make these types of phenotypes scalable and to distribute these technologies to the rest of the community. So what's next along this research path? There's a lot of things that we would like to follow up on. One of them is to begin to quantify specific behaviors and how those behaviors are implemented by the neural circuits and how those behaviors are implemented stably as these neural circuits change and deform over time. And so we have some ideas of the types of behaviors that we might be looking for, and we would like to scale these measurements up. That's one of the powers of microfluidic devices is that we can make potentially dozens or even hundreds of chambers and have animals behaving simultaneously collect all that data at once and process large number of statistics. And that's the other direction that we want to go. Finally, we just won an award from the National Science Foundation to support dissemination of these technologies. So one of the things that we're looking for is holding workshops and making these materials freely available online for other researchers to use and adapt to their systems. Jacob Robinson, thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you, Robert. Jacob Robinson is a neuroengineer at Rice University. You can read more about these new microfluidic devices in the November-December 2018 issue of American Scientist magazine. Online at americanscientist.org, see a scan of all the neurons of a living hydra, a scan made possible by Robinson's team's work. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.